Well, good morning, and welcome to the Lord's house. This is indeed a day that the Lord has made, and we will what? Rejoice and be glad in it. Well, I'm so honored to be here today. I've always thought I would love to go speak at this church, and uh, to have the opportunity today, and to see some faces that I know, some people I even met this morning, some familiar faces. Dr. and Mrs. Foreman, good to see you guys, and what a joy it is to be here. Uh, I've been here at Hannibal Grange now nine years, and that's a great joy. Uh, someone asked me today, what do you do there? And I said, I'm the president. They looked a, a little surprised. I don't know what they thought because I looked young or I looked too old. I'm not sure now. Uh, I made the wise decision of having my presidential portrait made at the beginning of my tenure. And let me just say, I looked a lot younger then. So uh, it's a joy uh, to be here with you today. Let's ask the Lord to bless his time around his word today as we share in it together. Father, uh, we love you today. We thank you for the incredible opportunity we have just to be here today. Paul says, in you we live and move and have our being. That means the very breath that we're breathing this morning, the life that we're enjoying, the things that we have all belong to you. And so today as we come together as a church body, we pray our hearts would be mutually encouraged not only because of our faith collectively, but because of uh, the exhortation today we'll receive from your word. And I pray, Father, you would uh, give us ears to hear, hearts to receive, and wills to obey your word. And I pray, Father, that you would just bless the time that we have together around your word. And I pray this today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you so much for being here today. What a joy it is to be able to come and bring God's Word. I want to invite you today to take your Bibles and turn with me together to the Gospel of John, chapter number 3. John, chapter 3. Part for the course for me is to always be preparing to preach, and I'm currently working my way through the Gospel of John. We come to John chapter 3 today, and it's probably one of the most beloved and studied passage of Scripture. No doubt John 3.16 is probably one of the most quoted verses of Scripture. When Tim Tebow wore it in the national championship game in 2009, millions of people Googled to figure out what in the world John 3.16 was. What a, what a smart move on his part to do that. Reminded people of the encapsulation of the gospel message for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have eternal life interestingly I've never preached on that text nor have I in my 30 some years of ministry preached on John chapter 3 so here we go this morning hang on we should have a lot of fun this morning in these wonderful verses we see where the source of love comes from it comes from God the agent of God's love is revealed in Christ. And the object of love is universal, yet God's love is personal. And so as we see this text today, it's a great reminder that God's grace has been manifested to us. And John's purpose of writing the gospel was so that those believing in Jesus would not perish, but have everlasting life. In fact, if you read the gospel of John or you read his epistles, you're reminded time and time again that the believing on Jesus is the key to having everlasting life. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said about this text, Amid the ruins of humanity there was space for showing how much Jehovah loved the sons of men, 
For the compass of His love was no less than the world, and the object of it no less than to deliver men from going down to the pit, and the result of it no less than finding of a ransom for them. End of quote. And so, like Spurgeon bemoaned the fact that he had never preached this text, I don't have to do that anymore because you're going to get the message today in John chapter 3. So let's begin reading together in verse number 1 today and uh, read it uh, together and listen as the Lord speak to us. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher that comes from God. For no one can do these things unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things and you did not believe, how can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does this is true. Whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. What an amazing passage of Scripture. The key character in this passage obviously is Jesus, but the focus of Jesus' interaction is with a man called Nicodemus. And so today I want to talk to you about this passage of Scripture and point out some things that I think are important for us to remember as we think about engaging people with the gospel. This is a great passage of scripture because Jesus is the evangelist, Nicodemus is the sinner. And so we see the message is very clear that we must be born from above. Billy Graham once preached at my alma mater at Duke University. They expected him in that chapel that day to bring a very 
uh, deep theological message in that day. He preached on this particular passage, and the thrust of his message was, you must be born again. And so later in a news conference, someone asked him, why did you preach such a simple sermon? Everybody has heard that sermon. Everybody's heard that text. And he said, because you must be born again. Re-emphasizing the truth of Jesus in this passage of Scripture that what Nicodemus needed was a spiritual birth from above. He begins in this passage of Scripture seven times talking about the new birth and the necessity of the new birth. And so he takes Nicodemus through obstetrician, I think, isn't that people who uh, deliver babies? What is that called? Help me out here, doc, somebody. Uh, they, obstetrician, that's right, okay. So he gave him a lesson in medical science and helped to illustrate a spiritual point. Nicodemus, you must be born again. Now Nicodemus had a hard time understanding this earthly illustration. Jesus says, you didn't understand my earthly illustration. How will you understand a heavenly illustration? But he said, Nicodemus, what you need is a spiritual birth, a birth from above. Nicodemus was thinking about somehow or another being born again, maybe re-entering his mother's womb. But Jesus said, Nicodemus, what you need is a spiritual birth from above, a life that's only imparted by the Holy Spirit. Jesus goes on to say this comes through the work of the Spirit in our life and it's like the mighty rushing wind that we saw at Pentecost. And so in these first few verses, seven times he talks about uh, the new birth. And in the following verses, 11 through 21, he mentions uh, seven times, excuse me, a, a, a number of times the importance of uh, believing on Jesus. And so I would say to you, the first part emphasizes God's sovereignty. The Salvation, the supernatural work of salvation that God wrought in a believer's heart. And the second part talks about human responsibility. We have to believe. Nicodemus, you must believe on Jesus Christ. And so the message to the sinner is this. No one can gain their salvation. No one can merit their salvation. No one can earn their salvation. But all we can do is believe on Jesus for the free gift of eternal life. So today, as we look at this passage, I want to divide it up really in three areas. First, I want you to see how Jesus confronts unbelief. Nicodemus had a very futile religion. He, Jesus addressed them. Nicodemus was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, which in that day would have been like being a member of the Supreme Court. Historians tell us that Nicodemus was one of the top three wealthiest men in Judea. He was a teacher of the law, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, yet Jesus says you have a feudal religion. Then the second thing Jesus does is he commends belief. He says it's necessary, Nicodemus, that you believe in order to receive the gift of eternal life. And then finally, I want you to focus on the fateful promise, Jesus condemns unbelief, a final warning. So think with me in those three lines of thought. First of all, a feudal religion. Jesus confronts unbelief. The story begins by introducing Nicodemus. There was a man named Nicodemus. We know a lot about Nicodemus because uh, the scripture has a lot to say. History has something to say about Nicodemus, about who he was and what kind of life he probably lived. Interestingly, the Bible makes a note that Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. 
No one truly knows Nicodemus's motivation. Perhaps he feared the Jews. Perhaps he feared losing his position. But whatever reason Nicodemus had for coming at night, John is quick to point out that he secretly came to see Jesus of Nazareth. The fact that he was a Pharisee means that he was, had an elevated status. He had an uncompromising conviction and commitment and devotion to the Old Testament and the rabbinical law and all the tradition of the Jews. He was an expert. Jesus even calls him a teacher of Israel. And so there are some historical indications that he was one of the wealthiest people in Jerusalem, which means he had reached a high status of influence. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court, a very, very elevated Jew. And here we find Jesus himself, an evangelist, and Nicodemus as the subject of evangelism. This is Jesus talking to a lost sinner. This is Jesus talking to a hypocrite. This is Jesus talking to a man who needed to be converted, who needed to enter the kingdom of God, who needed to have eternal life. Now this I think about Nicodemus as I think about his life. No doubt he was a very troubled man. Think about it for just a moment. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a keeper of the rabbinical law. He was uh, the highest order of Jew. In fact, he was very fastidious. It was said of the Pharisees that they were so fastidious that they tithed from the mint in their garden. How many of you took one-tenth of what you got out of your garden this week and you gave it to the Lord? I'll tell you what the Lord would have got, a tenth of a pepper out of my wonderful garden. Amen? But these people were committed to their relationship with God, but Jesus says their way was wrong. He was the archetypal hypocrite. And you can say nothing about Nicodemus that he did not already know. He was a deeply troubled man. He was a hypocrite. He does not know what it means to be reconciled to God. There was no overwhelming confidence in his own life that he would be received of God. He was not sure he was in the kingdom of God, which he continually speaks of and which he ostensibly represents. So Nicodemus hopes that maybe this man is from God. Maybe this man can give him answers that would settle the anxiety of his soul. Maybe this man could give him some assurance and confidence of his relationship with God. But Jesus' response to Nicodemus is earth-shattering. Jesus said to him, you can't establish your own righteousness. You need a spiritual birth that comes only from God. The revelation is devastating. Think about it. Here's a man who had committed his whole life to this understanding of keeping the law to obtain salvation and to please God. But Jesus turns his religion upside down. He points out that his human achievements, his work, his religion, his ceremony, his morality, all these categories of accumulation could not make him right with God. And the final ind uh, ind indictment comes from the Lord when he says to Nicodemus, I quote, Are you a teacher of Israel and you do not know these things? What an understatement. Jesus confronts his unbelief. But secondly, Jesus also commends belief in verses 3 through 18. The story now shifts from Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus about his spiritual birth, the necessity of this spiritual birth, and now Jesus begins to tell Nicodemus how a person can be born again. In fact, Jesus is not uh, making a suggestion here. He's making a commandment, an imperative. You must be born again. It's a statement of fact. 
The kingdom is open to those who uh, know that it is only a work of God alone. No works, no effort, no merit. The kingdom of God is open. What does it mean by the kingdom of God? Well, it means the realm of salvation, the way of God, forgiveness of sin, eternal life, heaven, blessings in time and eternity. All that is part of the kingdom of salvation. All of that is available only to people who are born from above by creative act done by God in which they do not participate. This is the work of God. So Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a part of an elite group of people who studied the Old Testament law. He obeyed the law and all the rabbinical traditions and grew up around the law fastidiously. They were the most devoted of all the Jews in the New Testament. And they didn't see themselves as some kind of people that needing minister to. In fact, they saw themselves as people who were better than other people. They even isolated themselves from the average Jew. In fact, when they went to the temple in those days, there were special ramps and special access ways to the temple so they would not have to be with the regular people the sinners, those who were not keepers of the law. Jesus said unto them, they were like whitewashed tombs on the outside, full of dead men's bones on the inside. And actually, he said to them that they were the sons of hell. They multiplied sons of hell everywhere they went because they themselves were sons of hell. Nicodemus is described in Matthew 23 as one of those Jesus pronounced a series of damnations upon and curses. Nicodemus would be like the Apostle Paul who, when given his own testimony about what it was to be a Pharisee, says he was zealous for the law, that he was blameless before the law, and that he kept every tradition and he marched in step with the Pharisees, required in every very detail, tithing even the herbs in their garden. They were fastidious about their religion, but they were hypocrites. Then he comes across Jesus, and guess what? He says in the opening passage of Scripture is he must be from God because you couldn't do these things unless you are from God. Nicodemus recognized that here was a teacher above all other teachers. Never was there a teacher who taught like this man. Never was there a teacher who could literally raise people from the dead or heal them of some sickness or malady. And so he came to Jesus. He wanted to know who Jesus was. He wanted to know God. He wanted to have a relationship with God. But here he finally meets a man who's a greater teacher than him. He's a greater miracle worker from him. And Nicodemus is intrigued about this man. Now, Jesus drives home the impossibility of Nicodemus remedying his own condition and to tell him the only hope is a spiritual birth. Hey, listen to me. It's humanly possible. Impossible. You're speaking of something that's impossible to me. Nicodemus was supposed to be a teacher of the law, but he didn't get it. Now, here is the the message of the gospel today. God has extended grace to us through the gift of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot earn our salvation. We cannot gain our salvation by good works. The only thing that we can do is call out to the mercy of God and to believe on the true Son of God. He is the only one that can give us a spiritual birth necessary to bring us into the kingdom of God. So, for the first time in his entire life that God had to do something in his soul, this great work of rebirth that came from above, but he didn't have that hope of eternal life. He was stunned. He was absolutely stunned. 
So Jesus uses a final illustration for us in this passage of Scripture that emphasizes that salvation is the result and the object of one's faith. To believe on Jesus is to receive eternal life. Jesus says, Nicodemus, you must believe. In fact, toward the end of this passage of Scripture in verse number 36, it says, He that believes on the Son has life, but he that obeys not the Son, the wrath of God abides on him. What's the difference of those who have been born again and those who have not been born again? Those who have believed on the name of the Son of God. Jesus used this final illustration of Moses and the serpent in the wilderness. Think about it for just a minute. The children of Israel, because of their disobedience and because of their complaining, God had sent a scourge upon the, the people of snakes. And so people were being bitten by these snakes and they were dying. And so Moses gets a word from God. He begins to fasten a bronze serpent. He puts it on a pole and he tells Joshua, take this before all the people and whosoever shall look upon this object of scorn and derision and uh, malady will be saved. And so those who looked in faith and believed in the serpent as the remedy for their salvation were saved from their sickness. And so it is, Jesus was giving us the illustration that as the Son of Man shall be lifted up, He will all draw all men unto Him. Because in Christ, we see the means by which we can be forgiven that Christ died for our sins. But even more importantly, He died for my sins. He died for our sins on the cross. He paid the final penalty for all of our sins. So when He was finished on the cross, He said, It is finished what's finished he's made a way for salvation for all who will believe and so in these verses of scripture seven times he encourages Nicodemus to believe on him and have a son, uh, eternal life belief is mentioned seven times belief is more than just a mental assent about Jesus but believing is trusting and resting and relying upon him and believing that he is the one who has the remedy for our problem and our problem is sin. Anyone who is spiritually dead and who is without Christ must look upon the Son of Man and believe on him. This belief is more, of a, more than just a mere mental assent. As James tells us, even the demons believe in Jesus. It's more than just believing him as a historical fact. It's more than just believing that he is who he says he is, but we must believe and trust and rest and lean and rely upon him alone for our salvation. Many acknowledged Jesus as the Messiah, but not all of them believed. Many gave mental assent, and even today give mental assent to the truth of the gospel, but saving faith is complete abandonment of everything we know and casting ourselves on the one who alone can forgive us of our sins. The result of belief is a spiritual transformation. Like the Israelites who received healing and wellness from looking on the bronze snake, when we believe on Jesus, we receive a spiritual birth, forgiveness of sins. It's a transformation of life. And so, unfortunately, Many have uh, quoted this verse of Scripture and translated it in many different ways, but verse number 36 says simply again, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon him. So what does it mean to believe in Jesus? Well, to believe in Jesus is to fully submit to him, to obey him. 
It's to live your life in complete obedience to Him as your Lord and Savior. The Greek lexographer Joseph Thayer appropriately commented on this verse, Pistuo, to believe and explained it when he said, especially of the faith of which a man embraces Jesus. It means a conviction, a full joyful trust that Jesus is Messiah, the divinely appointed author of eternal salvation in the kingdom of God, conjoined with obedience to Christ. And so to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ is the means by which the spiritual birth comes. I can remember even now the joy I felt the night that I placed my faith and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. I didn't have near the theology that I have now, but I understood one thing, that without Him, I was nothing. That without Him, I couldn't obtain eternal life. That without Him, I couldn't receive salvation. That without Him, I could not be forgiven of my sins. And one night, in a church about like this, with about this many people, I responded to the gospel message to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That night I placed my faith and trust in Him. That night I rested and leaned and relied upon Him alone for my salvation. That night I believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and a spiritual birth and transformation came into my heart. My life has never been the same since. In fact, one of my teachers was so disturbed at the change in my behavior that she wrote a note home to my mother inquiring about what was going on in the home Uh, that uh, she was concerned that there had been such a radical transformation in my behavior. Fortunately, in this case, it was a good one, amen? But there was a change and a transformation in my heart. And finally, I want you to see here in this passage of Scripture that Jesus condemns unbelief. A final warning in verse number 19 and verse number 20 says here, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does uh, wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works are exposed. Though God's love is universal, it does not override the universal law that the soul that sinneth shall surely die. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Isaiah 59.2 says, Our iniquities have separated us from God. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. And what we deserve for our sin is universal death and destruction in hell. But the gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord is available to those who believe. The one who believes on the Son has eternal life, but the one who refuses to believe in the Son shall not see life. Instead, the wrath of God abides upon him. John 3, 36. You see what John is saying? The difference between those who are saved and those who are lost is very simple. Belief in Jesus Christ. The difference between those who have eternal life and those who don't is belief. It's that simple. So the whole thing is about believing and not believing. Jesus confronts Nicodemus' unbelief and Jesus commends belief and he condemns continued unbelief. So I'm often asked, do you think Nicodemus was a Christian? Well, interestingly, let's look at what the Bible says about his life. Something I believe happened in the life of Nicodemus between John chapter 3 and John chapter 19. 
Jesus begins in unbelief. He doesn't know what it is to have eternal life. He doesn't know what it is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, uh, 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 he begins in unbelief. Nicodemus denies Jesus in John 3. Then in chapter 7, verse 50, Nicodemus is recorded at defending Jesus. Something is happening in Nicodemus' life. Then in John 19, 38 through 42, Nicodemus no longer denies him. He no longer just defends him. But now Jesus, uh, Nicodemus comes forth in the light of day to identify with Christ, to claim his body, and to publicly profess his faith in Christ. You say to me, Anthony, why do you believe there was a con 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 conversion or change in Nicodemus? It was demonstrated by his life, by his actions, and by his pocketbook. Years ago, I preached a sermon out of the Old Testament, the three books of worship. There's the good book, there's the hymn book, and there's the pocketbook. Amen? Something happened in Nicodemus's life. He came publicly to ask for the body and beg the body of Jesus with Joseph of Arimathea. He came to publicly make his faith in Jesus known. The two men that buried him, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, were rich, also a Sanhedrin member, but not a Pharisee. He had been born from above, and when Nicodemus showed up with 75 pounds of spices, this was the volume of spices fit for the noblest of people, powdered resins, alloy, and fragrance, sandalwood smell to cover the odor of corrupting flesh. He is now a new creation. He is bold. He was not afraid anymore. And neither Joseph of Arimathea was af were afraid. They went to Pilate. They wanted the body. They were not afraid of Pilate anymore. They were not afraid of the Jews. Somewhere between John 7 and 19, heaven came down. And I believe Nicodemus was born again. Well, what do we know about the rest of the story? Tradition tells us that Nicodemus gave a defense of Jesus at his trial before Pilate. Tradition says that Nicodemus was baptized by Peter and John. Tradition says that his confession in the Lord Jesus as Savior led him to be deprived of his role as a Pharisee. He was excommunicated. He was dismissed and banished from Jerusalem by hostile Jews. Tradition says that his family was reduced to utter poverty so severe that there's a charming story about his daughter and his daughter on behalf of the family. They were so poor, she was reduced to shame by digging in the dung piles to find grain to eat. The daughter of Nicodemus is approached by a rabbi who sees her looking for seeds in the dung pile and asks her who she is, and she says, I'm the daughter of Nicodemus. To which the rabbi reportedly says, What happened to your father? And the girl said, He followed Christ and was banished, and the rabbis refused to help him. Photios, centuries later, refers to an ancient document that records that Nicodemus was martyred for his devotion to Christ and beaten to death by a mob. Now that's tradition, but I have some good news for you. If you really want to know when you get to heaven, ask Nicodemus. Nicodemus, what happened to you? And I believe he'll tell you there was a time and a place somewhere between John 3 and John 19 that Nicodemus was born from above. Well, as we come to the close today, today's message, I want to encourage you to think about your relationship to God and ask yourself the question, am I completely resting and leaning and relying and believing on the Lord Jesus Christ 
for my salvation. That's the only way in which we can truly have a new birth, a spiritual birth from above. Nicodemus is an illustration that we can't be good enough, we can't keep the law, we can't be uh, uh, on the right committees and on the right religious circles to be approved by God, but you must believe in who Jesus is and what Jesus did for you. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so Jesus was lifted up on a Roman cross. He died a most excruciating death, and the Bible says he did that to pay for your sin and for my sin. And the means by which we are forgiven of our sin is believing on the one, looking to the one, having faith in the one who died for our sins on the cross, who made a way whereby we could be reconciled to God. So may your hearts be encouraged today in God's word as we think about what it truly means to be born again. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you today. And what a joy it is to be here in this special church with these great people and to hear your word. A very simple word, a reminder, Father, today that we must have a spiritual birth in order to be received into the kingdom of God. We must have a spiritual birth in order to be forgiven of our sins and reconciled to you. No effort alone can merit our salvation. Only believing in the one who died for our sins, the Lord Jesus Christ, can we truly know that we've been born from above. And so, Father, I pray that you'd bless your people today as we leave, as we sing our hymn of uh, benediction, as we leave this place. I pray our hearts would be encouraged in the Lord. We pray it in his name. Amen.